Hello, everybody, and welcome into episode number 45 of the Bible Reading Podcast. And our big question of the day is, what are you championing and promoting with your life? What is your life message? Well, I'm still recovering a little bit from my hospital stay today, but also rejoicing at the grace of Jesus and his people as I kind of went through that ordeal. Today's readings begin with Genesis 47, where we see Joseph initiate a 20% tax on everything the Egyptians produce, which 20% on the surface actually seems like a pretty fair number if that's the sum total of taxes paid by the Egyptian people. Sounds like something of a flat tax proposal, but I do know that under Joseph's system, Pharaoh keeps the land. So most Americans probably wouldn't go for that. We value our private property ownership. Job chapter 13 features our broken-hearted hero offering up many heart-wrenching lamentations to God. And we actually begin a couple of new books today, The Gospel According to Luke, and the whole first chapter, which is very long, is devoted to the preparation for the birth of Jesus. Thanks to Robert Murray McShane's reading plan, we're only reading the first 38 verses of Luke 1 today. Tomorrow, we will, we will read the rest. Our focus passage is also from a new book, and that book is 1 Corinthians, and we're zeroing in on what is the essential core of the Christian message in this passage. So let's read it get together and then wrestle with the questions that it raises. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 1 in the Christian Standard Bible. Paul, called as an apostle of Christ Jesus by God's will, and Sosthenes, our brother, to the church of God at Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called as saints with all those in every place who call on the name of Jesus Christ our Lord, both their Lord and ours. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I always thank my God for you because of the grace of God given to you in Christ Jesus, that you were enriched in him in every way, in all speech and all knowledge. In this way, the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you so that you do not lack any spiritual gift as you eagerly wait for the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ. He will also strengthen you to the end so that you will be blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful. You were called by him into fellowship with his son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Now I urge you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree in what you say, that there be no divisions among you, and that you be united with the same understanding and the same conviction. For it has been reported to me about you, my brothers and sisters, by members of Chloe's people, that there is rivalry among you. What I'm saying is this. One of you says, I belong to Paul, or I belong to Apollos, or I belong to Cephas, or I belong to Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in Paul's name? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius so that no one can say you were baptized in my name. Well, I did, in fact, baptize the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I don't recall if I baptized anyone else. For Christ didn't send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with eloquent wisdom, 
so that the cross of Christ will not be emptied of its effect. For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but it is the power of God to us who are being saved. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and I will set aside the intelligence of the intelligent. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the debater of this age? Hasn't God made the world's wisdom foolish? Since in God's wisdom the world did not know God through wisdom, God was pleased to save those who believe through the foolishness of what is preached. For the Jews ask for signs, and the Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. Yet to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God because God's foolishness is wiser than humans wi- human wisdom and God's weakness is stronger than human strength. Brothers and sisters, consider your calling. Not many of you were wise from a human perspective. Not many were powerful. Not many of noble birth. Instead, God has chosen what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. And God has chosen what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God has chosen what is insignificant and despised in the world, what is viewed as nothing, to bring to nothing what is viewed as something, so that no one may boast in his presence. It is from him that you are in Christ Jesus, who became wisdom from God for us, our righteousness, sanctification, and redemption, in order that, as it is written, let the one who boasts boast in the Lord. So allow me to open our shorter than normal discussion time today with a question. What cause or what person are you a champion for? So I have an online friend who claims to be a Christian and a minister. I'm in a group she's in, and something like 90% of her posts are about the importance of biblical feminism. That's her words, not mine. She is a champion for biblical feminism because that seems to be the most important thing to her. I've got other friends, and you do too, who at various times are evangelists for, I don't know, essential oils, various wrapping things that actually work, if I'm being informed correctly, different nutritional beverages and shakeologies, all sorts of workout things, something called CrossFit, which I'm not sure is a Christian thing or not. Uh, I guess it is, but apparently it makes you look quite svelte. Uh, and then various other nutritional things and such. The people who post about these all the time, they are champions for those products and ideals. I'm not criticizing, just pointing out. What about me? Well, I post about this podcast an awful lot and about what our church is doing. I'm also trying to become a writer, and therefore I can tend to post about my books and articles a good bit, especially when I've just written one. And if I'm thinking about it, I suppose that makes me a champion for uh, myself, which sounds quite embarrassingly narcissistic, so maybe let's move on, shall we? What about you? What are you a huge champion for? Is it homeschooling? I I love homeschooling. We've homeschooled all of our kids and a couple are in public school now. Is it organic foods? That's pretty good. Is it breastfeeding, natural birth, fantasy football, a particular politician, or on the other hand, enmity against a particular politician? Cereal. 
a third-party political candidate, a football team, vaccinations or non-vaccinations. What is your thing that you are eager to talk about, eager to persuade people on, eager to hit click on the publish button on Facebook or Twitter or Instagram or Snapchat about? What is the thing you want to talk about all the time? What's your soapbox issue? So I would ask you to consider that you are a champion for that thing, whatever it might be. Is it weight loss? Well, maybe you're a champion for your successes. Is it your books? Well, like I said earlier, maybe like me, you're a champion for yourself. Let me ask it in a bit more of a pointed and challenging way. What are you an evangelist for? If you're a mom or, or a dad, and I've got five kids, our kids need Jesus. We can discipline them, and we should, absolutely. We can teach them, and we absolutely should. We can train them, and yes, we should do that too. We can educate them, and of course, we should do that. But here's the funny thing about kids and humans. We can't change them. We can't save them. We can discipline them in the way they should go, but we can't internally change them. They need Jesus. And here's a question, mom and dad, aunt and uncle, whatever. Are you in the eyes of the children that know you, your kids or other children that know you, are you primarily a champion of Jesus? Are you in their eyes primarily an evangelist to them of Jesus. Because here's the thing, day in and day out, our kids need Jesus. As toddlers, as teens, as tweens, as adults even, they need to be constantly seeing you and I pointing them to Jesus. So think about 1 Corinthians one twenty and the couple of verses after that as a parenting passage or even a teaching passage if you're not a parent or a leading passage. 1 Corinthians one twenty. what Paul says, where's the philosopher, where's the scholar, where's the debater of this age? Hasn't God made the world's wisdom foolish? For since in God's wisdom the world did not know God through wisdom, God was pleased to save those who believe through the foolishness of the message preached. Almost to it. For the Jews ask for signs, and the Greeks seek wisdom, but we, Christians, that's us, we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. What is our message? Stop sinning and do right. Uh, love everybody. Uh, take care of the, the poor and the needy. Study your Bible. Come to church. What, those are all uh, good messages, but none of those are the message with a capital T-H-E. The message of Christians is we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles, but the power of God unto salvation for those who believe. Let me quote Spurgeon for us. He says, the motto of all true servants of God must be, we preach Christ in him crucified. A sermon without Christ in it is like a loaf of bread without any flour in it. 
no Christ in your sermon, sir? Then go home and never preach again until you have something worth preaching. A sermon without Christ in it as its beginning, middle, and end is a mistake in conception and a crime in execution. However grand the language, it will be merely much ado about nothing if Jesus Christ be not there. And I mean by Christ not merely his example and the ethical precepts of his teaching, but his atoning blood dying on the cross for us, his wondrous satisfaction made for human sin, and the grand doctrine of look to him in faith and live. So, stretching that a little bit, no Christ in your parenting, ma'am, sir, no Christ in your marriage, no Christ in your pastoring, no Christ in your discipleship or your leading, then scrap it all and start over again with Christ Jesus as the keystone and the foundation. Parenting without Jesus in its beginning, middle, and end is a mistake in conception and a crime in execution. It is much ado about nothing. Hebrews 12, 1 and 2 points us in the right way. Let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus the pioneer and perfecter of faith. Eyes on Jesus, words about Jesus should be the chief part of our message. Genesis 47, verse 1 in the Christian Standard Bible. So Joseph went and informed Pharaoh, My father and my brothers with their flocks and herds and all that they own have come from the land of Canaan and are now in the land of Goshen. He took five of his brothers and presented them to Pharaoh. And Pharaoh asked his brothers, What is your occupation? They said to Pharaoh, Your servants, both we and our fathers, are shepherds. And they said to Pharaoh, We've come to stay in the land for a while because there's no grazing land for your servant's sheep since the famine in the land of Canaan has been severe. So now please let your servants settle in the land of Goshen. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Now that your father and brothers have come to you, the land of Egypt is open before you. Settle your father and brothers in the best part of the land. They can live in the land of Goshen. If you know of any capable men among them, put them in charge of the livestock. Joseph then brought his father Jacob and presented him to Pharaoh, and Jacob blessed Pharaoh. Pharaoh said to Jacob, How many years have you lived? Jacob said to Pharaoh, My pilgrimage has lasted 130 years. My years have been few and hard, and they have not reached the years of my fathers during their pilgrimages. So Jacob blessed blessed Pharaoh and departed from Pharaoh's presence. Then Joseph settled his father and brothers in the land of Egypt and gave them property in the best part of the land, the land of Ramses, as Pharaoh had commanded. And Joseph provided his father, his brothers, and all his father's family with food for their dependents. But there was no food in the entire region, for the famine was very severe. The land of Egypt and the land of Canaan were exhausted by the famine. Joseph collected all the silver to be found in the land of Egypt and the land of Canaan in exchange for the grain they were purchasing, and he brought the silver to Pharaoh's palace. When the silver from the land of Egypt and the land of Canaan was gone, all the Egyptians came to Joseph and said, Give us food! Why should we die here in front of you? The silver is gone! But Joseph said, Give me your livestock. Since the silver is gone, I will give you food in exchange for your livestock. So they brought their livestock to Joseph, and he gave them food in exchange for the horses, the flocks of sheep, the herds of cattle, and the donkeys. That year he provided them with food in exchange for all their livestock. 
When that year was over, they came the next year and said to him, We cannot hide from our Lord the fact that the silver is gone, and all our livestock belongs to our Lord. There is nothing left for us for our Lord except our bodies and our land. Why should we die here in front of you, both, both us and our land? Buy us and our land in exchange for food. Then we with our land will become Pharaoh's slaves. Give us seed so that we can live and not die, and so that the land won't become desolate. In this way, Joseph acquired all the land of Egypt for Pharaoh, because every Egyptian sold his field since the famine was so severe for them. The land became Pharaoh's, and Joseph moved the people to the cities from one end of Egypt to the other. The only land he did not acquire belonged to the priests, for they had an allowance from Pharaoh. They ate from their allowance that Pharaoh gave them, therefore they did not sell their land. Joseph said to the people, Understand today that I have acquired you and your land for Pharaoh. Here is seed for you. Sow it in the land. At harvest you are to give a fifth of it to Pharaoh, and four-fifths will be yours as seed for the field and as food for yourselves, your households, and your dependents. You have saved our lives, they said. We have found favor with our Lord and will be Pharaoh's slaves. So Joseph made it a law, still in effect today in the land of Egypt, that a fifth of the produce belongs to Pharaoh. Only the priest's land does not belong to Pharaoh. Israel settled in the land of Egypt in the region of Goshen. They acquired property in it, became fruitful and very numerous. Now Jacob lived in the land of Egypt 17 years, and his lifespan was 147 years. When the time approached for him to die, he called his son Joseph and said to him, If I have found favor with you, put your hand under my thigh and promise me that you will deal with me in kindness and faithfulness. Do not bury me in Egypt. When I rest with my fathers, carry me away from Egypt and bury me in their burial place. Joseph answered, I will do what you have asked. And Jacob said, Swear to me. So Joseph swore to him. Then Israel bowed in thanks at the head of his bed. Job chapter 13, verse 1. Look, my eyes have seen all this. My ears have heard and understood it. Everything you know, I also know. I'm not inferior to you. Yet I prefer to speak to the Almighty and argue my case before God. You use lies like plaster. You are all worthless healer. If only uh, healers. If only you would shut up and let that be your wisdom. It's good advice, by the way. Sometimes we need to shut up and let that be our wisdom. Hear now my argument, continues Job, and listen to my defense. Would you testify unjustly on God's behalf or speak deceitfully for him? Would you show partiality to him or argue the case in his defense? Would it go well if he examined you? Could you deceive him as you would deceive a man? Surely he would rebuke you. If you secretly showed partiality, would God's majesty not terrify you? Would his dread not fall on you? Your memorable sayings are proverbs of ash. Your defenses are made of clay. Be quiet and I will speak. Let whatever comes happen to me. I will put myself at risk and take my life in my own hands. Even if he kills me, 
I will hope in him. I will still defend my ways before him. Yes, this will result in my deliverance, for no godless person can appear before him. Pay close attention to my words. Let my declaration ring in your ears. Now then, I've prepared my case. I know that I'm right. Can anyone indict me? If so, I will be silent and die. Only grant these two things to me, God, so that I will not have to hide from your presence. Remove your hand from me, and do not let your terror frighten me. Then call, and I will answer, or I will speak, and you can respond to me. How many iniquities and sins have I committed? Reveal to me my transgression and sin. Why do you hide your face and consider me your enemy? Will you frighten a wind-driven leaf? Will you chase after dry straw? For you record bitter accusations against me and make me inherit the iniquities of my youth. You put my feet in the stocks and stand watch over all my paths, setting a limit for the soles of my feet. A person wears out like something rotten, like a moth-eaten garment. Luke chapter 1, verse 1. Many have undertaken to compile a narrative about the events that have been fulfilled among us. Just as the original eyewitnesses and servants of the word handed them down to us, it also seemed good to me, since I have carefully investigated everything from the very first, to write to you in an orderly sequence, Most Honorable Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things about which you have been instructed. In the days of King Herod of Judea, there was a priest of Abijah's division named Zechariah. His wife was from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. Both were righteous in God's sight, living without blame according to all the commands and requirements of the Lord. But they had no children, because Elizabeth could not conceive, and both of them were well along in years. When his division was on duty and he was serving his priest before God, it happened that he was chosen by lot according to the custom of the priesthood to enter the sanctuary of the Lord and burn incense. At the hour of incense, the whole assembly of the people was praying outside. An angel of the Lord appeared to him standing to the right of the altar of incense. When Zechariah saw him, he was terrified and overcome with fear. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, because your prayer has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you will name him John. There will be joy and delight for you, and many will rejoice at his birth. For he will be great in the sight of the Lord, and will never drink wine or beer. He will be filled with the Holy Spirit while still in his mother's womb. He will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the disobedient to the understanding of the righteous to make ready for the Lord a prepared people. How can I know this? Zechariah asked the angel. For I am an old man and my wife is well along in years. The angel answered him, I am Gabriel, who stands in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you and tell you this good news. Now listen, you will become silent and unable to speak until the day these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their proper time. 
Meanwhile, the people were waiting outside for Zechariah, amazed that he had stayed so long in the sanctuary. When he did come out, he couldn't speak to them, and then they realized that he had seen a vision in the sanctuary. He was making signs to them and remained speechless. When the days of his ministry were completed, he went back home. After these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived and kept herself in seclusion for five months. She said, The Lord has done this for me. He has looked with favor in these days to take away my disgrace among the people. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent by God to a town in Galilee called Nazareth to a virgin engaged to a man named Joseph of the house of David. The virgin's name was Mary. And the angel came to her and said, Greetings, favored woman. The Lord is with you. But she was deeply troubled by this statement, wondering what kind of greeting this could be. Then the angel told her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. Now listen, you will conceive and give birth to a son, and you will name him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. Mary asked the angel, How can this be, since I have not had sexual relations with a man? And the angel replied to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. And consider your relative Elizabeth. Even she has conceived a son in her old age. And this is the sixth month for her who is called childless. For nothing will be impossible for God. I am the Lord's servant, said Mary. May it be done to me according to your word. Then the angel left her. Amen. Well, I hope the word of the Lord has been encouraging to you. I hope it has edified you. I hope it has been water to your soul and spirit, a refreshing dose of God's goodness to you. May the Lord bless you and keep you. Godspeed.